Now this evening, congregation, if you would turn in your Bibles to the gospel according to Luke, to chapter 1, we'll be reading from verses 26 through 38. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find this on page 1177. Then after we read from the inspired Word of God, we would also direct your attention to the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, this evening to Lord's Day 14, and in the Forms and Prayers book, you can find that on page 215. We'll be considering this evening the doctrine or the truth or the reality of the incarnation, and that the eternal Son of God, in the fullness of time, took our human nature unto His person, body, and soul. And He did that uh, through the supernatural working of the Holy Spirit with what we know as the virgin birth, a truth that we confess in one of the articles of the Apostles' Creed. And we believe this based upon the revelation that is given to us in the Word of God as we read it this evening from Luke 1. Again, we begin at verse 26 and continue through verse 38. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus." He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her, who was called barren. For with God nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Thus far this evening, our reading from the word of God. We then look at Lord's Day 14 of the Heidelberg Catechism, and question 35 begins by asking, what does it mean that he, and that's reference to the second person of the Trinity, Jesus the Christ, what does it mean that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary? And the answer that the eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took to himself through the working of the Holy Spirit from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, a true human nature, so that he might be also become David's true descendant, like his brothers in all things except for sin. Question 36 then asks, how does the holy conception and birth of Christ benefit you? And the answer, he is our mediator. And in God's sight, he covers with his innocence and perfect holiness my sin in which I was conceived. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the birth of a child is a wonderful event, but it's not an unusual event. A wonderful event, but not an unusual event. 
Uh, The world population uh, numbers nearly 7 billion currently. So no doubt there have been a lot of babies that have been born. Uh, One of you had the experience recently to job shadow uh, another member of the congregation uh, who works in the Palo Regional Hospital. And on that certain day, two babies were born, at least two babies, at Palo Regional Hospital. Two children born in one day. And no doubt, the birth of both of them was a remarkable event, especially in the lives of the father and the mother. But the birth of children is not an unusual event until we come to consider the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And perhaps we should be more precise even from the beginning and say that the actual birth of the Lord Jesus Christ was not that unusual. Mary would have experienced many uh, of the same experiences that mothers who deliver children today experience. And that's emphasized with the phrase uh, that she took her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes. But if by the lens of Scripture we look a little bit more carefully, we'll notice that what is absolutely remarkable is the conception, the conception of Jesus Christ. And that's what we want to consider this evening for our understanding and also for our benefit by looking at our theme, redemption through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. I just want to pause and point out the meaning of that word incarnation, maybe especially for the boys and the girls. Incarnation, it's a big word. It's a word we use a lot, but it's often helpful for us when we use these big words to stop once in a while and to break down what exactly we mean by these big words. So incarnation, it simply means to become flesh, flesh in the sense of human flesh or human nature. So when we talk about the incarnation, we refer to Jesus Christ taking a very real human nature unto himself. And this is what John talks about in the opening of his gospel account, the Word became flesh, incarnation. And as we look at the incarnation of Jesus Christ, we'll notice this evening, first of all, the action in the incarnation, and then secondly, the result of the incarnation, and then thirdly, the benefit of the incarnation. So redemption through the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the action, the result, and the benefit of the incarnation. So first of all, then consider this evening the action of the incarnation by noticing the agent and the manner. The agent of the incarnation is emphasized by the authors of our Heidelberg Catechism uh, when it answers question 35 in this way, that the eternal Son of God, and then notice there's the description of His eternal divinity, which remains the divine nature is not changed in the process of the incarnation. The divine nature is what we call immutable, unchangeable, because that is the very nature of God. So it's not as if Jesus Christ's divine nature somehow transforms or morphs into some new existence, but rather that He Himself takes to that divine nature, adds, you might say, in addition to that divine nature, a very real human nature. But notice that he himself does this. And this already begins to, 
identify the uniqueness of the conception of Jesus Christ. Because we, you and I, we had absolutely nothing to do with our conception. We were, so to speak, completely passive. We had no prior existence before our conception. And so those babies that are born uh, in the delivery uh, wards of the hospitals, uh, they are completely passive uh, in the very first instances of life upon conception. And we just note that that is indeed when life begins, at the moment of conception, regardless of what the foolish uh, experts of our day uh, might proclaim in the secular realm. Life begins at the moment of conception and has inherent value and is sacred and is to be protected. But the conception of Jesus Christ is unique in the fact that He Himself takes unto Himself a very real human nature. And this is how John begins his account of the gospel with what theologians have called Christology from above rather than a Christology from below. Christology just means uh, the study of Christ. Uh, When we study who Christ is, we must always begin with Christ above, in the realm of eternity, His divinity, His power, His majesty. And then understanding something of that, then we can progress to begin to understand something of the fact that He humbled Himself and took unto Himself a very real nature like unto us in all points with the exception of sin. But why did Jesus Christ do this? Why would Jesus Christ voluntarily, freely, as Philippians talks about, humble Himself and make Himself of no reputation He who considered it not robbery to be in the form of God. What would motivate him to add to his divine nature a very real human nature and enter into the suffering experiences that we'll consider in the weeks uh, that lie ahead? One thing motivated the Lord Jesus Christ. The glory of his Father and the accomplishment of salvation. And so the Nicene Creed mentions that The incarnation took place for us and for our salvation. And so, yes, we can peer into the deep mysteries of the incarnation, but as we peer into the deep mysteries of the incarnation, let us not lose sight of what motivated the incarnation. The electing love of God the Father and the appointment of a deliverer, a redeemer for those whom He had elected. And this is why John, in the first chapter of his gospel account, emphasizes as he points to Christology from above, he who was God became flesh. That's why John also includes, and we have received grace upon grace. Because every aspect of the incarnation, every aspect of the conception, radiates with the reality of divine grace, undeserved favor from God to sinners. The manner of the action, and here we have to acknowledge that this is a mystery that far goes beyond our comprehension. But we can say some things based upon the revelation that is given to us in Scripture about the manner of the incarnation. The actual birth of Jesus was a real birth. 
Uh, and the actual nature that Jesus Christ took upon himself was a very real human nature. And there were many, many uh, early Christological debate in the church of whether or not Christ had a full human nature. And uh, this was resolved based upon the testimony of Holy Scripture to say, absolutely, yes, Jesus Christ had and has, present tense, a very real human nature, body and soul. So Jesus Christ in addition, so to speak, to his divine nature, which remains unchanged, also has a very real human body and a very real human soul. And the gospel accounts especially emphasize this, Jesus Christ's body. And we see this on the cross. His body is there on the cross. But we also know that he has a very real human soul as he expresses in the Garden of Gethsemane, now my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. And we'll get to that eventually, Lord willing. Uh, but in the resurrection from the dead, it is simply the drawing back together of those two constitutional elements of the human nature, body and soul. And also then glorifying uh, those two constitutional elements. But how do we know this? You'll notice that we've referred to Holy Scriptures. Because this congregation is a miracle a miracle in the true sense of the word, something that is above the laws of nature, something that is even, you might say, contrary to the laws of nature. And this is what motivates Mary's question. Mary, as an unmarried woman living in moral purity, especially in regards to the seventh commandment, says, how can this be? How can I be with child when I have not known a man? And you can appreciate her dilemma, so to speak. Now, she asked her question in faith, but faith is seeking understanding. And the angel gives understanding. And the answer is, this will take place by virtue of the miraculous, supernatural power of the Holy Spirit producing conception without the involvement, without the participation of a biological father. Now, we want to be very cautious in our language, that we don't transgress the bounds of propriety. We can simply say it this way, that without any involvement of a human father, the Holy Spirit produced conception in the womb of Mary. Now, you and I and especially young people, you need to brace yourselves for the sarcasm of an unbelieving world in regards to this point of doctrine. The unbelieving world will laugh, and they'll say, do you really believe that? And we, with our Bibles before us and with the Spirit within us, have to say, yes, we believe that, because with God, all things are possible. With God, all things are possible. And this then is something of the manner of the action. But notice then in our second point, the result of the incarnation. And I want to look at that underneath two subpoints: the fulfillment of a promise and the provision of a mediator. The fulfillment of a promise. And here, 
we don't necessarily design for there to be overlap with what we consider in the morning sermon and the evening sermon. This is a testimony, again, to the organic unity of Scripture, but also to the one theme that runs through all throughout Scripture. Uh, now, I, I acknowledge that sometimes ministers are unnecessarily repetitive, and if that becomes an issue, that ought to be brought to their attention. But there is also a necessary repetitiveness. If the text of Scripture demands that repetitiveness. And so again tonight we find ourselves focused upon the fulfillment of a promise that goes all the way back to the beginning of Genesis, of a promise that was bound up with a seed. And in Genesis 3.15, the first gospel promise, thereupon uh, the the conclusion of the fall, so to speak, God comes and says, I will put enmity between two seeds, and the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent, would destroy the devil and all of his tactics. And that promise continues all throughout the Old Testament, and it's bound up with God's covenant, with the administration of the covenant from one generation to the next generation. There was bound up in the hearts of the faithful people of Israel, the faithful covenant community, this expectation, this anticipation that God is going to bring deliverance by way of a seed, by way of a descendant, by way of a king. And so you can go, for example, from Genesis 3, verse 15, uh, into 2 Samuel 7, uh, verses 10 through 16, and there the covenant promise is given to David that David, you will sit upon a throne, but even more importantly, your seed will sit upon a throne. The seed of David would sit upon, would occupy this throne with a kingly dominion over the people of God. And the prophets look for the same thing. You can think of perhaps Isaiah 7 verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And here again, Emmanuel is one of these beautiful words that we use so often, but perhaps we forget the meaning of it, God with us or God with man. And that already begins to unfold something more of the mystery of the incarnation, God with man, not just dwelling among us, but actually taking our very nature unto himself. And so the revelation is now expanding that the seed of David will be God, man, will be a God man. The seed of David, the royal king, will have both a divine nature and a human nature in the one person who will be seated upon the throne. And this is woven all throughout the Old Testament. You can think also of Psalm 132, verse 11. The Lord has sworn in truth to David. He will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. That was the promise given to David. The fruit, the descendant, the seed of your body will sit upon the throne. And that's why the angel comes in the line of David to Mary and says, You will conceive and you will bring forth a son. And that son will be the king, the eternal king, the Messiah. And I just simply want to try to encourage us to see that all of the promises of Scripture are bound up with the person of Jesus Christ and the incarnation. Because there's a danger that we just kind of pull a text at random out of the Old Testament 
And it gives us maybe a warm, sentimental feeling. And so we use it as kind of a motivational reminder, maybe putting it on our desk or wherever else is a prominent spot. And we just kind of look at it and we say, oh, everything will be well. The Bible says this. But it's all bound up in the person of Jesus Christ with who he is and with what he has done. And that's why when liberalism came, especially in the 1800s and then in the early 1900s, beginning in Europe, especially with German higher criticism, and then spreading into the Christian churches in North America, that's why when higher criticism, which looked at the Bible and said, we need to cut out everything that's miraculous, that is above nature, it absolutely devastated the church. And you can do the history. You can see seminaries that were once very, very prominent and holding to the biblical faith, absolutely emptied of any conviction because of this higher criticism or this liberalism. When so-called educated men began to say, hath God really said a virgin conceived? Well, doesn't science tell us very clearly that virgins don't conceive? Yes, but with God all things are possible. So yes, science says that in the ordinary process of procreation, there is the involvement of a father and a mother. But when God decides to intervene into the flow of human history that is stained by original sin, God surpasses the normal, ordinary ways of meaning. And by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit brings to realization the promise that He had given already in the very beginning of human history, that he would give the promised seed of David to be the mediator. The mediator, the one appointed and qualified to establish and to fulfill the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace rests upon the work of the mediator. And the one and only mediator is Jesus Christ, the God-man. So the why of the incarnation is bound up in the provision of a mediator. Jesus Christ did not come merely to show us a good way to live and a noble way to die. He's not just some type of moral example. But rather he comes to satisfy the offended party that is God for the sake of the offending party that is you and I, because we had offended God and we continue to offend God by our sin, by our rebellious transgressions against an almighty God. That's the bad news. The good news is is that the royal seed of David has come to bring about peace, to bring about reconciliation by offering himself as a substitutionary sacrifice to cover in the sight of God. And And that ties into the term and the thought that flows all throughout Scripture also of the day of atonement or the day of covering, covering our sins in the sight of Almighty God. But in order to be this mediator, there are certain requirements. Hebrews 2 verse 17 says, therefore in all things he, that is Jesus Christ, the mediator, the one who would bring about peace between us and God, he needs to be like us in all points. In all things he had been made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God 
to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This is what motivated the church fathers to give themselves so tirelessly to defending the faith concerning who Jesus Christ truly is. Athanasius, the church father who perhaps most valiantly stood for the truth, it was said of him, Athanasius against the world and the world against Athanasius. Because there was many, many a time when he was the only one who was fighting for the faith that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man in one person. Now, why did he fight so for the faith? Not just because he was cantankerous, but because he understood that his salvation demanded both natures in one person. Sometimes individuals may ask and may think, why does he, why do they get so serious about their doctrine? Why do they still preach sermons on the mystery of the incarnation? Because our salvation demands it. And our faith can never just be some leap into the dark that says, I don't know who Jesus is, but I better have him. Add him to my spiritual portfolio. Add him for my hope for the life that is to come. But rather, faith is a certain conviction, a certain knowledge. And along with that knowledge, a, a certain trust in a person. Not just in abstract statements of truth, but in the person of whom those statements of truth apply. So that with all of my soul, I believe Jesus Christ fully God, fully man. And how? By the mysterious but very real work of the Holy Spirit upon the Virgin Mary. Behold the Mediator. And if we believe on Him with a true faith, then there is a benefit. And we consider that in our third point, summarized again by the Nicene Creed, speaking about Jesus Christ, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate, became flesh by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. So what? Well, the so what is answered by the description of the benefit in connection to our original sin and our original guilt. David says in Psalm 51, verse 5, that he was conceived and born in sin. And that applies to you and that applies to me. Our life began at the moment of conception, but our life began underneath original sin. With guilt being imputed to us, so that in the older form for the administration of baptism, which I believe Reverend Barnes will use next Sunday morning, that's where we used form two this morning, it will say there that we believe that we and our children are conceived and born in sin and therefore are subject to all manner of misery, yes, even to condemnation itself. 
even to condemnation itself from the very moment of conception. Do you believe that? That at the moment you came into existence, you existed underneath condemnation because of your sin. If you believe that, then you will seek a substitute. And then the question will be, well, is there anyone who is not conceived and born in sin? Among the billions and billions and billions of children who have been conceived, is there anyone not conceived in sin? And the answer, thanks be to God, is yes. There's one. One human life began in the moment of conception, totally and absolutely free from guilt and condemnation. There was one person who was not subject to all manner of miseries. There was one person who was not subject to condemnation. And that person was Jesus Christ, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. But the absolutely remarkable thing is this, congregation, that the one person who was conceived without sin was conceived in order to bear sin. The one person who came into human existence with absolute purity did so in order that he might be loaded with the guilt of those whom he came to represent. So you have one child born in perfect holiness and in perfect righteousness only in order to be a scapegoat for all of those elect infants who are conceived and born dead in their sins and in their trespasses. This is the benefit. It's summarized by our Heidelberg Catechism. How does the holy conception and birth of Christ benefit you? Just notice in passing also, our catechism continually strives to drive home the the experiential value, the benefit. It's, it's not content. As a good teacher is, it's not content. Well, can you just tell me what the incarnation is? It presses deeper and it wants to know, well, how does this benefit you? Other times the question is, how does this comfort you? And what do you gain from this? And the answer, he, that is Jesus Christ, is our mediator, and in God's sight, he covers with his innocence and perfect holiness my sin in which I was conceived. This is the wonder of the gospel. That I'm born dead in sins and in trespasses, but he, Jesus Christ, is born in perfect holiness and righteousness so that my sin might go to him and his righteousness might come to me if I believe. And so I press the question to your conscience and to mine also, do you believe? Do you believe these things with the confidence of faith in the personal exercise of faith? Do you believe 
in things that are unseen? Do you believe in things that science cannot explain? Do you believe in things that the leading academic experts of our day say is impossible and irrelevant? Do you believe in the Incarnation? that the eternal Son of God, according to the promises made to our fathers in the fullness of time, was conceived by the work of the Holy Spirit upon the Virgin Mary, that He might be brought forth in perfect innocence to deal with our sin and our condemnation. If you don't believe, then I lovingly but also pointedly say you must believe in order to receive the benefit. You must believe in order to receive the benefit of the substitutionary work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins. And to those who believe, this is not, this is not just some abstract doctrine to be bantered about. This is our hope for time and for eternity. And so I would close with an earnest plea for each of us individually and collectively as a congregation. We sing sometimes of the faith of our fathers not to parade our fathers before our mind's eye, but to simply remind ourselves that the Christian faith has been handed down once and for all to the saints. And in the general epistle of Jude, you will find the exhortation to contend earnestly for the faith. The old story of the gospel. I would imagine that many, many a pulpit today has had a message that has pretended to be much more hip, cool, relevant, up-to-date, applicable to your Monday mornings, but I would submit to you that this is what we need to hear. The promise of a gracious king has been realized in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we stand amazed at the wonder of the incarnation. We ask, Lord, for insight and understanding. We pray for humility to receive the testimony of your holy scriptures. And we pray that our souls might be comforted, that when we are reminded of the painful reality that out of our original guilt comes forth daily uh, the sins of our thoughts, words, and deeds, and when we try as hard as we can, but we cannot eliminate the sinful nature with which we are continually plagued, may we find comfort in knowing that one was born, that one was conceived without sin and that He is our substitute, and that He, by His perfect innocence, covers in Your sight our guilt. May our hearts then be comforted, and may Your name then be glorified. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.